Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I want to ask you today, if you have your Bibles with you, to open them to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, for our time together today. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be here on the screen uh, here in just a moment. Um, I want to say to you very openly uh, up front today as we open God's Word um, that I come to you with a very, very heavy heart today. Um, There are just a series of things that, that God's been really working in my heart and life over the last few weeks and Uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, um, God completely changed the direction of the message that I would preach today. And my hope and prayer is that in sharing it, that it comes across from a place of of burden and brokenness, Uh, not from a voice of judgment or a voice of self-righteousness, but from a voice of desperation for God to work and to heal and to move. We've been going over the last few months now, last several weeks for that matter, through a sermon series called Invited to Ask. And we've been reminded of the incredible privilege as well as the opportunity, the incredible responsibility that we have as believers to come before the throne of grace and pray. We know all throughout God's word that God calls us to be a people of prayer. Uh, We can give literally hundreds of scripture references with that, but the one that quickly comes to mind is 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where the Bible commands us to pray without ceasing. It means that we are always to be in a mindset and an attitude, an ongoing conversation as it would be in this this focus of prayer. Colossians chapter, chapter four, verse two says literally that we are to devote ourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The idea is that we are to give ourselves completely to it. So as children of God, we are called to be a people of prayer. And we've seen that over the past month. We were reminded of the very first sermon of the series of the fact that prayer is indeed a privilege. It's not a mindless repeating of words. It's not a form of punishment, but instead it is a privilege before God that Jesus has made it possible not only for us to know God in relationship, but he's also made it possible that we can come before the throne of grace at any time from anywhere and bring anything to him. In fact, the Bible says, according to the book of Hebrews, that Jesus left the throne of heaven. He came to this fallen, broken world filled with sin. He lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And not only did he die on the cross for our sins, but the Bible says three days later, he rose again from the grave. That is the essence of the gospel, that Jesus came, he died in our place, and he rose again from the grave. That is the good news. We can be forgiven. We can be saved. We can have a relationship with God the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. But that was not the end of it for Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus appeared over 500 witnesses at one time, and then he ascended into heaven. And today, even still, he lives, and at the right hand of the Father, he makes intercession for us. He is interceding. He's standing in the gap for us even now. So literally because of what he's done, we can come to God's throne of grace and we can pray and we can petition and we can pour out our hearts and we can be still and listen. We can come into his presence with a confident assurance that we will be heard before him. Jesus has done that for us. The next week we saw that Jesus provides us not only the opportunity of access to God's throne, but Jesus even models for us what that looks like. 
as Jesus on a regular occasion in his life and his earthly ministry, he would depart away from the crowd where he would get along with God the Father and he would pray. In fact, numerous times he not only got away from the crowd, he got away even from his disciples, those closest to him, where he spent time uninterrupted, completely focused in fellowship with God the Father in prayer. His example teaches us to do the same. Then we saw a few weeks ago about the Lord's Prayer and Jesus teaching his disciples how they were to pray, the types of things that they are to pray and what they're to ask for when they come before God the Father in prayer. Today, we kind of take a little bit different perspective on prayer, but nonetheless, a perspective that I believe God wants us to hear. And just to be blunt with you and just honest with you in this, this was not at all the message I was planning to preach. A few months ago, when I was praying through and working through the preparation of this sermon series, I really wanted to focus specifically on the example of Jesus and the clear teachings of Jesus as it relates to prayer. Of course, in doing that, you end up ruling out a ton of great, powerful illustrations of prayer in the Bible, but I want us to focus specifically on Jesus and his words and instructions and his example. But over the course of the last few weeks, Uh, God has made it overwhelmingly clear that this is the message that he wants us to hear today. And so I want to ask you, if you would, to look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1, where I preach to you on the subject, the principles of effective prayer. The principles of effective prayer. And I want to ask you, if you would, to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. The Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 16, that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Say that again. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, what does that mean that there is an effective prayer? Doesn't that also imply that there are some prayers that are ineffective? Have you ever felt like you were praying and really touching the heart of God? And then at other times that you were praying and you wondered if God was even listening? Have you ever wondered, is there some sort of magical formula, some specific things to say that if you do this, then the prayer will be effective? Is that really what God meant when he talked about the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishing much? Nehemiah chapter one gives us a great example of what effective prayer looks like. Let's read together. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in, listen to these words, great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Listen to Nehemiah's response. When I heard these words, I sat down and what? I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you command your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remotest parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. Verse 10, God, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. A little summary. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time that we have together and I praise you that you've given us your word that's alive and well today. God, my heart is heavy and my mind is full. God, I I confess today that I need your help and your strength. And so God, I pray today that you would humbly and yet clearly speak through me. And God, I pray that you would convict our hearts, that you would convict our lives. God, that we would recognize where we need to be broken over our own sin. And God, I pray that you would bring us to a place, not only of repentance, but a place where we return to you. God, I pray that you would do this for your name's sake and for your glory alone. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. The principles of effective prayer. As I mentioned to you a moment ago, this is not the message that I was planning to preach, but frankly, over the last few weeks, God has been clearly leading me back to this illustration of the man named Nehemiah. This probably shouldn't surprise me. It just so happens to be that after I'd prepared the sermon series for being invited to ask and what that looks like, um, right before I finished that uh, preparation, um, I was reading in my devotional time through the book of Nehemiah. And in reading through the book of Nehemiah, one day I was talking with Pastor Michael and and I was telling him how much it really had just kind of gotten my attention that Nehemiah really was a great man of prayer. In fact, if you read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find at least 12 instances where Nehemiah was very intentional in his prayer time. Uh, At times he prayed as a response to something going on. At other times he prayed simply because he was burdened to do so. And so he made it a priority and he was a great man of prayer. So that was over a month ago now that I'd read through the book of Nehemiah. Last week, I had been in Nicaragua. Many of you know that. And we were flying back late on Saturday, early Sunday morning is when we were getting back into town. And normally when I take a trip like that, when I know I'm going to be in the airport for long periods of time, I'll take at least a book with me to read. I I like to read, try to keep my mind sharp. And so on my way out the door, I grabbed a book on prayer that I've never read. Uh, by a guy named H.B. Charles Jr. called It Happens After Prayer. Great book, by the way. And so I grabbed the, pair, uh, the, the book, put it in my, my book bag, and went off towards Nicaragua. Well, our time there was full. And so uh, my last night in Nicaragua, for whatever reason, I didn't sleep very good. So getting ready for my longest day of travel, I got the worst sleep I'd gotten the entire week. Wouldn't you know that's how it works sometimes. And so we, uh, we leave Nicaragua, fly to Miami. We have a layover in the airport. Then we're flying to D.C., I should have been absolutely exhausted, but for whatever reason, I couldn't sleep. 
I was in the plane, and I was kind of in an uncomfortable area, uh, just kind of cramped quarters, if you will. I couldn't sleep, and so I reached into my bag, and you know when it's tight, you just kind of reach for whatever you can find, and what do I pull up? I pull up this book about prayer, and so I begin reading. I get 100 pages into the book, when all of a sudden, again, my attention is directed to a very familiar illustration, the illustration of a man named... Nehemiah, that's exactly right. And so I'm reading this and I'm, I'm, and I'm already just uh, encouraged and at the same time convicted by what I'm reading. And then I go into this week that I've just had. And I will just be blunt honest when I tell you that by the time I tried to go to bed on Wednesday night and then by the time that I woke up on Thursday morning, I felt in many ways that I could relate to the brokenness and the discouragement and the grief that Nehemiah felt in Nehemiah chapter one. And it's in that context this morning that I wanna preach to you about these keys of effective prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, but what does an effective prayer look like? I mean, are, are there magical words? Are there specific things that God is wanting us to say? Or is there more to it than that? And what I'm convinced of this morning is that God is far more interested in the heart of the person praying than he is on the words that are simply being muttered out of your mouth. And we see some incredible things about this man named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was not perfect. He's just like you and me. He, he faces his own struggles, and you see that as you read through the book. But he does in this moment provide us an incredible example of what effective prayer looks like. And so I want us to notice five key points. There's a lot to say with a heavy heart, but I pray that God will give me uh, strength to do so this morning. Five things about effective prayers. If you're ready to learn, would you say, all right. Five things. The first thing I want to say about effective prayer is this. If we're going to pray with effective prayer, we must first pray with urgency. We must learn to pray with urgency. Nehemiah seems to understand that God does not regard every single prayer. In fact, twice in this passage of scripture, Nehemiah says, God, please let your ears be attentive to my prayer. God, please hear what I'm saying right now. Please don't turn a, a, a deaf ear to me. Please don't reject the words that are coming out of my mouth. God, would you please listen to the words that I'm sharing with you? Would you please hear? It may come as a surprise to some of us here today. We, we think we can just throw up any prayer that we want to. We think that we could ask anybody in the world to pray. Just, just pray for me. Just throw out some words and God's going to hear it all. But the fact of the matter is there are some prayers that God does not hear. That may come as a surprise to us. In fact, the Bible lists several things specifically that if these things are true and present in our life, God will not hear us. He'll turn a deaf ear. He'll, he'll distance us with his arm is the kind of the picture and the idea. And, and we see that in Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes to a place where he realized he doesn't deserve to be heard in prayer. So he asks God, God, would you please be attentive to what I'm saying? Would you be attentive to my prayer? Well, what's some background for where he's at? What's some background for what's going on? Please understand, as we study this, I'm not giving a magical formula. If you do all these things, God's going to answer everything in the way that you want him to answer. This is not some magical pixie dust that if you apply it to your prayer life that everything's going to turn to gold, okay? But there is here several things that we see is true in Nehemiah, and later we see how God worked and moved in a mighty way. So what's the background? Nehemiah, the Bible tells us, had an official position in the Persian Empire, and that is he was the cupbearer to the king. Historically, we know that this is King Artaxerxes Longimanus, who ruled from 464 to 423 B.C., he was the king, the ruler of Persia. He was a mighty and powerful leader. Many people know him as the most dangerous leader of his day, but this is the place where Nehemiah is serving. 
Now, when we hear the word cupbearer, we think, man, what a cool position. You get to have the king's cup, right? You get to drink the same drink that he's drinking. You get to taste the same food that he's tasting. And truth be told, the position that Nehemiah in was a very privileged position in that culture. Uh, equivalent today, this would mean that he was likely the highest cabinet member in all the government position there right next to the king. That's kind of the equivalency here. The cupbearer was an incredible position. Yes, he did taste the king's wine and the king's food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned and therefore causing harm or even death to the king, but there was much more to the role than just that. As a cupbearer, he had to know the court customs of the day. As a cupbearer, he had to be someone who was trustworthy. As a cupbearer, he was the one who would hear all the behind the scenes secrets of the kingdom. He literally was the person who was closest to the king. So as a king would reason and begin to rationalize his thoughts, as the king would speak out loud the things that were on his mind, the cupbearer knew all the things behind the scenes that were going on. It was an incredible position. But it was a position that you could not leave easily. Because you had so much information behind the scenes and because you knew all the different things that were going on literally within the king's mind and thoughts as he would verbalize them, typically you did not leave that position except by death. Either because you were poisoned or because you tried to leave and the king said, eh, no more. You know too much. You're too much of a risk to my kingdom. That's the position that Nehemiah was in as he served there the king of Persia. But the interesting thing about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah, while he served in Persia, he was not a Persian. In fact, he was a Jew. We remember the Jews, we remember the Israelites, because they were God's chosen people. They were a people that God had chosen sovereignly to be his people and he to be their God. It was the Jews that God promised to one day send a savior through his name as Jesus Christ. It was the Jews that God had this covenant relationship with. And as God established his covenant relationship with him, God had promised great blessings if they were to love him completely, if they were to honor him completely. He promised blessing upon blessing. But if they were to reject him and rebel against him, he also promised judgment and consequence. Well, by the time Nehemiah is alive, the Jews have already experienced both God's blessings and God's judgment. In fact, the Jews had lived in a place where God had been gracious to them and God had been good to them. And even though they knew they shouldn't rebel against God, they reached a point in their life as the Jews that they became arrogant. They began to think they could do whatever they wanted to do. They began to reject God's will, turn from his word, and they began to do their own thing. And we know the history. That by about 586 BC, they experienced the consequences of that. A powerful kingdom came to the throne named Babylon and Babylon invaded Jerusalem. They completely tore Jerusalem all the way down to the ground and they hauled off all the Jews to serve in Babylon as slaves. Well, by the time Nehemiah comes on the scene, the Jews have been desperate to God. They've cried out to God for mercy. They've cried out to God for help and God has heard them and God has intervened. He had brought to the, thr uh, brought to the throne a, a leader named Cyrus the Great and Cyrus the Great had a burden to help the Jews. So Cyrus overwhelmed and overcame Babylon and then not only did he defeat Babylon, but he released 50,000 Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city walls and to rebuild the, the, the magnificence that was once present in the holy city of Jerusalem. By the time Nehemiah gets on the scene, the Jews have been back in Jerusalem for nearly 100 years. And it's in that backdrop that we see what's unfolding in Nehemiah chapter one. 
Picture the scene with me for just a moment. Nehemiah, the Bible says, is in the city of Susa. Why? Susa was the capital city of Persia, and it was the location of King Artaxerxes' winter palace. So it's wintertime. In fact, it tells us that it's the Hebrew month Chislev, which for us is mid-November to mid-December. The Bible says that Nehemiah is about a normal day in his routine, serving the king as the cupbearer. He's at the king's palace in the wintertime, and he's fulfilling his duty and responsibility as a cupbearer. When all of a sudden, one day, his brother Hanani and some guys who had been at Judah came to visit with Nehemiah. Now, we're not told a lot about these guys, but we get the impression that they were people who had, besides his brother Hanani, they were people that had some sort of acquaintance and connection with Nehemiah. And we can picture the scene. If you've had friends come to visit you from a long time or a, a brother come to see you, you, you connect with each other. And so Hanani shows up, and I'm sure that they embraced, and I'm sure they talked about all kinds of things. Tell me, how's our family? How's mama doing? Tell me about your travels here. Did you have any adventures along the way? Did you run into these state troopers and get a speeding ticket? I mean, tell me about the journey to get to Susa. Well, they talk and they share pleasantries, if you will, and they catch up a little bit. And then suddenly, Nehemiah asks a very simple question. Now, Nehemiah had no idea the implications of his question. Nehemiah had no idea that based upon the answer of this question, God would radically change the entire course and direction of his life. Nehemiah had no idea what God was about to do in his heart and life. He just asked a simple question. We see it in verse two. Here it is, guys, in the midst of everything else we're catching up on. Nehemiah says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now picture the scene. Nehemiah is a normal day. Hannah and I and these men of Judah have just been in Jerusalem. They've kind of seen what's going on. And so Nehemiah asks a very innocent question. Guys, tell me, you, you've just been there. Tell me all about it. How are our brothers and sisters how are the people of God, how are our Jewish brethren, how are they doing in Jerusalem? I mean, they've been there a hundred years and they've been able to rebuild their, their houses and rebuild the temple so that they could worship God. They've been able to rebuild the city walls so that they're protected and they're safe. They've been able to, to make the city magnificent and great again. And, and I'm sure they're just worshiping God and they stand out unique from the world around them. Everyone by now must look at them and say, man, they are unique and different because of the greatness of their God that they worship and serve. Tell me, how are the people in Jerusalem? and about the city. Tell me all about it. I can't wait to hear. And Hananiah, Nehemiah's brother, says, oh, no, 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 Nehemiah, you don't understand. Yes, it's, it's true that, that God's people are living in Jerusalem, but there's only a small remnant. They're struggling to stay alive. They're not flourishing and they're not thriving. They're suffering and they're struggling. No, 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 Nehemiah, you don't understand. Like the city walls, are they're still in shambles. Like everything's still broken down around it. Everywhere you look, you see the evidences of our disobedience and God's judgment and the consequences that came upon it. And no, 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 it's not good. In fact, we're not rejoicing in God. We are a reproach to the name of God. The nations of the world look at us and they scoff and they wonder, how could this be God's people? 
It's not exactly what Nehemiah was expecting to hear. Let me ask you a question. What would you do in that moment? I mean, what would you do in that moment if people come and they're sharing with you these problems and these burdens and these concerns and these these griefs? I mean, things are not how they're supposed to be. This is not how God's people were supposed to live. This is not what God's city was supposed to look like. This is not the way that God's name was to be represented in the world around them. What do you do? I don't know about you, but my mind goes into fix-it mode. Well, tell me all the problems. Okay, great. Here's a 10-step process. If you do these 10 things, we'll clean it all up. Others of us, we, go, we, we don't go into planning mode. We go into, well, let's do something. Grab a shovel, grab a rake, grab something. We're going to work. Who knows what the plan is or what it's going to cost? I don't know, but we're going to do something. Others of us look back and think, oh, my goodness, the, pro- the, the problems are great. They are too great. We can't do anything. It's too overwhelming. We don't know what to do. What did Nehemiah do? I love the statement. Verse four, here's what he did. He prayed with urgency. Verse four, when I heard these words, immediately, the rest of the calendar is empty. The rest of my plan, it's empty. Regardless of what I had going on, it's empty. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know what he's doing? He's recognizing in that moment that the most important thing he can do and the most urgent thing he needed to do, the first thing he should do is he should come before God and he should pray. What does effective prayer look like? It looks like this. Effective prayer takes place when we make prayer our first response, not our last resort. Effective prayer takes place when we make prayer our first response, not our last resort. Some of us say, but pastor, that's not me. That's not my nature. Like I, I'm more cautious in my nature and I'm more methodical in my nature. Like I don't do anything urgently. When it comes to prayer, we must learn to pray with urgency. In fact, regardless of your personality, regardless of your makeup and how you're wired, the fact of the matter is, if we recognize the urgency of a situation, we begin to pray with urgency. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. I've known numerous people who in their personality tend to be very uh, risk averse and and cautious in in their process and very methodical. And yet when they get the news from the doctor that they have cancer, and there's very little they can do, guess what happens? They become very urgent. When they realize in that moment, my only hope is God to do something, to intervene instantly. It doesn't matter their makeup or their person. There's an urgency about their prayer. Let me ask you this. If you were flying tomorrow, getting on an airplane like we just got on last week, and you were flying and you were to get, I don't know, 30,000 feet in the air, and all of a sudden there's turbulence and the plane begins to shake, and then a few minutes later the pilot comes on and says, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but uh, we're going to have to make an emergency landing. One of our engines has blown and the other one is weak. Something's not right. We need to make a landing. Let me ask you, how many of you are going to be urgent all of a sudden? Oh, yeah. We're going to be urgent. Anybody ever driven a car and lost control of a vehicle? I don't want to tell you how many times that's happened to me because you'll never want to drive with me anywhere. But there have been times. I remember moving to Virginia. I'd never driven on ice before. I saw snow twice in my life, and that was just barely enough to make a snowball. 
I remember the first time I lost control of a car driving on ice, and I remember driving, and I wasn't even driving all that fast, but suddenly, literally, the car was spinning, and I had absolutely no control. And if you've ever been in that moment, it's like, the, it's like time stands still. Everything is in slow motion. It's probably two seconds, but it felt like two hours. What do you do? You say, Jesus, take the wheel. That's what you say. I should have wrote that song. I'd have made millions, man. I don't know. What I'm saying is urgent situations calls us to pray with urgency. Nehemiah is in this moment. Think about this for a moment. The Jews had been in Jerusalem for 100 years. They've had plenty of time. Nehemiah is in Susa, hundreds of miles away. The reality is, is it have been easy for Nehemiah to say, not my problem. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to say, well, it serves them right that they're experiencing all this shame and reproach. They've had 100 years to do it. What do they do? It had been easy for him to point the finger and blame and excuse himself. But instead, he recognized that what was happening in Jerusalem was robbing God of the glory that he deserved. And so he prayed with an urgency. God, help us to pray with an urgency. Yes, there are times for action, and yes, Nehemiah would soon act, but Nehemiah understood first and foremost that he should pray. There is always much that we can do after we pray, but there isn't anything we can do to change the situation until we have first prayed. I love the way Warren Wiersbe says it. He says it this way, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. The question in looking at our situations is, are we content with our work or do we want God to work? And if we want God to work, we need to be urgent in our praying. Secondly, if we're going to pray effectively, not only should we pray with urgency, we should pray with adoration. Pray with adoration. When I say the word adoration, I mean literally that we are to pray with a heart of reverence and a heart of worship to God. Remember, it's not so much about the words that are being uttered from our mouth as much as it is the heart that we come to God with. Nehemiah, I think, models for us this because he came to God with a heart of a desire to worship God. I love this. Notice that when Nehemiah began his prayer, he did not immediately come with his request. Now, yes, there are some times of emergency. I said sarcastically, Jesus, take the wheel. There are some times of emergency where the only thing you can get out of your mouth is the name of Jesus or God help me, right? But the the nature of Nehemiah's prayer in having time to pray It's not that he came to God and said, oh God, here's my problem, here's my problem, here's my problem. It's not that he came to God and said, God, would you do this, would you do this, would you do, no, 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 no. The first thing we see of Nehemiah's prayer is that he came to God with a heart of adoration, a desire to worship and praise God. We see it in verse five. He said, I said, I beseech you, listen to this statement, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and love and kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Stop for just a moment. What's he doing? He's praising God. O Lord God of heaven. Remember, this is more than simply God's dwelling place. He is saying, Lord God of heaven, I recognize that you are the ruler of heaven and earth. I recognize that you are over all things. You have all authority. You have all power. It is by your sovereign plan that you work and you move and you rule over all things. Interestingly enough, isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray when he said, pray in this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We see the same idea of coming before God in prayer in Nehemiah's prayer. Not only did he say, Lord God of heaven, what did he go on to say? He said, the great and awesome God. I love that word, awesome. 
the great and awesome God. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's recognizing in these phrases, he's recognizing God's power to do anything. That literally with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with him. There is no limit to what God can do. Remember, Nehemiah's in a situation hundreds of miles removed from the Jews. He's in this situation where he knows that they are a reproach upon God's people. He knows these things are true. It would seem bleak and it would seem hopeless, but still he knows because God is the one in control. He has the power to work. He has the power to move and he can do anything. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But then he goes on to praise God saying this. He says, well, you are the God who preserves your covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. God, I I come to you praising you because I know that you're faithful. Yes, you are over all things, preeminent above all. Yes, you have power to work and move, but you are also faithful to fulfill your promises and show your mercy and to show your kindness. So God, I come before you to praise you. What does effective prayer look like? It looks like this. Effective prayer takes place when we pray with worship and reverence. Effective prayer takes place when we pray with worship and reverence. Someone might say, but pastor, I just talk to God like he's my friend. Well, that's a good thing. You should talk to God in many ways in that way because Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But I would also remind us that sometimes in that context, we need to make sure that we're not coming to God nonchalantly. But in the process of coming to him, we still recognize that he is almighty God who is over heaven and earth. And we should approach him with reverence and with worship. A simple illustration of that is I have a great relationship with my children. I love my kids. I love spending time with them. Um, I love having fun with them and uh, playing games and going to sporting events or whatever the case might be. I love taking them to, to eat food and taking them to Krispy Kreme and taking them to Krispy Kreme and taking them to Krispy Kreme. I enjoy those things. We have a great relationship. And because we have a great relationship, uh, my kids, I mean, regular parts of our conversation, hey, Dad, I have a question. When they say that, I have no idea what's about to come out of their mouth. I mean, it could be rant, my opinion on the world, my opinion on sports. It could be like, hey, when can we go do this? We talk about all kinds of things. But there are also some times in the nature of our close relationship that I have to remind them, I love you, I enjoy spending time with you, but I'm your father. Ever been there before? There are some times that they, in the process of that close relationship, they want to be your buddy. And there are times that I have to remind them, God didn't call me to be their buddy, but to be their parent, to instruct them. At times to enforce a consequence if they've done something they shouldn't. Or at times even as a parent to reward them for acts of obedience or things that have honored God. In the process of our relationship with God and growing close, yes, we should grow close, but we should also make sure we have a right view of him. If we don't have a right view of God, there is no way we will have a right view of ourselves or of others. Nehemiah understood that. So he comes before God. Before he asks prayer for anything or anyone else, the first thing he does is he gets his attention on God and he praises God because of who he is. Listen, in our culture, we easily suffer from a low view of God. And because we do, we come before God very nonchalantly and we come before God feeling like every possible problem in our, pro- in our life is a huge mountain. But please understand, God wants us to approach him as he is the almighty, holy God of heaven, preeminent above all. Think of that for just a moment. So the next time you pray, Start by praising God and having a right view of him and express your praise to him. You'll be amazed when you have a right view of God and praise him for who he is, how big your problems quickly become small. 
It's amazing how our problems have a right perspective when we have a right view of God. So pray with adoration. Third, if you're still with me, would you say, I am? Effective prayer, yes, we should pray in these ways, but we should also pray with brokenness. We should pray with urgency. We should pray with adoration, but we should also pray with brokenness. Now notice Nehemiah still has not asked God for the very thing that's driven him to his knees in the first place to pray. He's not rushing through this like he's, he, I mean, it's urgent to pray, but that doesn't mean he's going to be urgent in his prayer. Notice what he says in verse 6. Notice his brokenness. And I mean brokenness, I mean literally. He is grieved over what's going on. Here's what he says. Lord, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. Listen to the statement, which we have sinned against you. Now, at that point, we would all look and say, amen, that's right. The Israelites had sinned against God. They had disobeyed God. They had rebelled against God. Yes, they experienced consequences of that. God was gracious. God forgave them. God, God allowed them to go back to Jerusalem. But now a hundred years have gone by and they still haven't done what God sent them there to do. A hundred years have gone by and they've become complacent and they've not been living by faith and they've not been living by victory. In fact, they've begun to live in fear and so they sit there literally as a reproach against the God they claim to know and serve. We'd say amen. But listen to Nehemiah's next statement, verse six. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Let's stop there for just a moment. Effective prayer is prayed when we begin praying with a brokenness over our sin. I emphasize the word our. See, it would have been easy for Nehemiah to look and say, God, these people have sinned against you. They have acted arrogantly against you. They have rebelled against you. These people, God, have been so complacent. They have not done what you've called them and commissioned them and freed them to do. God, look at what they've done. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to do that. Let's be honest. It's easy for us to do that, isn't it? It's easy for us to point the finger. Adam, the very first man that God ever created, he models that for us in one sentence in the Old Testament. You remember the story, Adam and Eve sinned against God. God came to walk with them in the cool of the day like he always did with Adam. And the Bible says that Adam and Eve, they ran in fear and in shame because they knew they had sinned against God. God calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? And in one sentence... In one statement, Adam blamed both the woman that God gave him as a gift, and when he knew he couldn't get away with that, he blamed God himself. Adam, what have you done? Well, God, it was that woman. By the way, guys, it's not that woman's fault. God, it was that woman that you gave me. How dare you, God, give me this wonderful gift called Eve as my wife. How dare you do that, God? 
That's st- it's ridiculous, isn't it? Foolish. But he's blaming God. In our own nature, how often do we do that? <laughs> I see that with my children. We can, we can be eating dinner at the dinner table and and we'll be wrapping up our time, and, and uh, I'll say, hey, go ahead and put your plates in the sink or whatever, put your, your stuff in the trash, and, and they'll, they'll do that, and then I'll walk into the kitchen later to kind of clean up or whatever, and I'll notice maybe that there's a napkin or a paper towel that's there on the floor. It obviously didn't make it into the trash can. So I'll ask the question, hey, guys, who missed the trash can? Immediately, Mac, I didn't do it. Not me. Me and another child. Well, Dad, I think Lane did it because she looks guilty. I mean, you see that, that guilty smile on her face. I can see right through it. And, and then Lane gets in, no, 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 Dad. I know it was Manny because Manny was in here and he ran off really quickly like he was hiding something. It was him. We can go on this roundabout thing and nobody has any idea who did it, but we know that nobody did it because it must have some stranger dropped in from outer space and dropped the paper down the floor, right? We're blaming by our nature. Nehemiah could have easily blamed, God, it's these people, but he didn't. He said, God, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We are guilty. And if that wasn't clear enough, here's what he said. He said, I and my father's house have sinned. Think of this for a moment. Nehemiah is interceding and identifying and repenting of the sins of a people he'd never even met. And yet he knew, I am a Jew. The Jews here are living in this way. We've sinned. We've not done our part. And Nehemiah in this moment refused to give himself a pass. He refused to pass the buck. He realized that he had a part to play in it. I and my father's house have sinned. Well, how did his father's house sin? We don't know exactly. But it does strike us as interesting that his brother Hanani seemed to know all about the miserable condition of God's people. He knew all about the reproach that they had brought upon the name of God, and he doesn't seem the least bit moved by it. It's kind of an interesting note. And then here's Nehemiah. God, I have sinned. I have a part in this. There are some things that I have done in this. Now, please understand what I think is important to emphasize here is that it's easy for us to identify the sins of commission, the sins that when we do something that we shouldn't, it's easy for us to identify those. If I were to get upset and say something that I shouldn't say, there would likely be immediate conviction. You should not have said that. It's easy for us to have conviction over those sins. But what about the sins of omission when we don't do something that we know we should do? God's convicting us to go share the gospel with someone. No, God, I got more important things going on. God's convicting us to, to bless that missionary, that need, that, that Ava Care ministry. And we say, oh, God, I'm just not comfortable with that right now. You know, I'd rather have my Starbucks coffee this afternoon. It's hard for us to identify those sins, isn't it? Nehemiah hears the report and he immediately is grieving over the condition of God's people as well as he's grieving over the way that God has been represented to the nations around them. And in this moment, Nehemiah confesses, I have sinned. I can't help but to wonder the questions that were going through Nehemiah's mind in that moment. Why has no one had faith enough in God to be obedient and step forward and build? Why aren't the city walls rebuilt? Does anybody care about the reputation of their God and the way they worship him? But then Nehemiah begins to personalize the questions. Why have I never asked about the condition of God's people? Why have I not been concerned about the name of God in the nations of the world around Jerusalem? What has taken me so long to realize what's really going on? 
I think Nehemiah is asking that question, where have I been and what have I been doing? I mean, really, why have I been so distracted by pursuing all these other things and serving in the kingdom? Why have I missed this? How have I missed this? Effective prayer takes place when we are honest with God and repent of our sins. I think in this context, we see that Nehemiah and the people of God were largely distracted by pursuing their own things, that they missed the main thing in that moment. I remind you that this is the same context of what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer when he said, and Father, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Some have this idea, well, if you pray to receive Christ your Lord and Savior, you never need to ask for forgiveness again. But that's not what Jesus said. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 was spoken directly to believers, and it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said that to those who were in the faith. What God is showing us is, is that there should be a, a brokenness over our sin. David said it this way in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. By the way, I think he was a person to speak well about it. Here's what David said. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. And the word Selah means pause and think on this. When I was living in my sin and not turning to God and not confessing and not repenting of it, when I wasn't broken over my sin, he was robbing me of joy and it was robbing me of life and it was robbing me of vitality. Listen to what David said. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, think on this. Consider it. Without repentance, there was no life, there was no joy, but as soon as I repented and confessed it, there was forgiveness, there was mercy, there was joy, there was life, there was peace, there was all these things and more. It was the same David who said in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I was like, Pastor, I feel like I'm praying to God, but he's just not hearing. He may not be. Is there anything in your life that you need to repent of and be broken over today? To be perfectly honest with you, and I don't know if I'll finish the message today or not. It may be a part two, who knows. It is this point of Nehemiah's prayer that convinced me that this was the message to preach today. It was Nehemiah's brokenness over sin. Because frankly, this week, and really the last few weeks, I feel like that's where I've been, and I feel like that's where God's calling us to be as his people. I want to make some statements and just speak very candidly with you this morning. These are not political statements. These are not an agended statement. They're just simply statements of truth and statements of where I believe we are. A few weeks ago, right before we left for Nicaragua to serve and to minister there, as you know, the thing that was all over the headlines was what I'll call the cultural crisis of our nation's stance on abortion. Please hear me loud and clear. We have many people in our ministry here who have experienced the pain and so daily struggle with the scars of past abortions. 
And if you're in that place today, I want you to know that as you trust the Lord and live for him and live according to the promises and the grace of God, there can be healing, there can be restoration, and God can use you in a powerful way to encourage and minister to others today. But there is no doubt about where God stands on the issue of abortion. So two weeks ago when everybody was talking about the big news in New York about the bill that they had passed to allow abortion up to the very moment of birth and even in the legislative, uh, the, the terminologies of it all, the way it was described and worded, when you read through that, it is clear this is a sin against a holy God. And while many people jump to social media and all these different things without really thinking about what all their message was truly portraying, the fact of the matter is, as much of what was happening in New York was identical bill with very similar terminologies and, 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 and meanings was being presented to our own government here in Virginia. And, and of course, everybody celebrated because it wasn't passed, but it was, it was defeated by a very small margin. And it was defeated with our governor openly stating, this is our first effort of many towards the passing of this bill. And then there was all this outcry about it. And so he, he, and so he went into a, a radio station for the purpose of further clarifying. And in this process of clarifying, he openly described how literally up to the moment of birth that a child could be delivered, a child could be kept comfortable. And while the life was being there comfortable, this child's comfortable, they would discuss, few doctors with the, with the mother, what they wanted to do now with the life of this child laying right beside them. That is a sin against the holy God. God is the giver of life. When we think about the cultural issues in our day, I'm just telling you, I don't speak that as a term of judgment. I don't speak of a term of self-righteousness, but God help us to be broken. Why is it that we come to a place as a church where what grieves God's heart no longer grieves ours? We got on a plane. Actually, we got to the airport. Early, early, early Monday. It was so early, I began to wonder if God was even awake yet. I mean, it was that early on Monday morning. We're sitting in the airport, and of course, you're waiting for the flight, and the TV news is on, and everybody begins to talk about these reports of a yearbook photo that was taken years and years and years ago. It's interesting how quickly our, our verbiage went from abortion to that, but we Got on a plane, we flew to Nicaragua, we get to Nicaragua. By the time we get to Nicaragua, we're already hearing, not only is there the reports of this yearbook, oh, but by the way, the lieutenant governor, there's all these reports of sexual accusations and assault. Next day, we're hearing terms about the attorney general and a picture taken with him years ago. <laughs> That's just in Virginia. We're not even talking about D.C. And all the division and the political chaos and all the, I mean, all the mess that it is. And I'm telling you, when we look at these things in these situations, it should break our hearts to be praying. When was the last time you really got on your knees and prayed and you asked God for his wisdom and his direction and his guidance for our politicians and our governors and our president and all these different, when was the last time? It should break our hearts. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. The thing that broke my heart the most in all of this happened this past week. Sunday night before I went to bed, people were texting me, are you hearing about the reports out of Texas? No idea what you're talking about. Texas is a big state. They'll let you know they used to be a country all by themselves. That's a big state, a lot of people. 
No, I didn't know anything. Begin reading the reports, the first report, and the second, and the third, where they began to reveal and expose that throughout at least the Baptist church, some 200 ministers or Sunday school teachers or deacons, 200 people, had been sexually assaulting minors and the whole thing had been covered up for almost 40 years. And while the intent of the article was clearly to expose and in many ways to attack the church rightly, I, I'll be honest, I just sat there and grieved. Grieved for the victims, the pain that they've experienced, no doubt the questions about God that they've had, the impact on their families, the impact on their marriages, the impact on their children. Began to grieve about the way that Christ is being represented to the world. Coming to the office, we talk about this on Tuesdays as staff. We spend time praying at this altar. Wednesday morning, I get the news that a well-known Bible preacher that many of us respect and listen to, he's been removed from his position of ministry. Rightly so, he's been functioning without accountability and uh, abusing that trust. Wednesday night, I, I learn of a major denomination in our country, many of which are local, who are openly embracing the homosexual lifestyle, while God does clearly call us to love everyone where they are and minister to them to share the gospel. I'm thankful God loves us right where we are, but he loves us so much that when we repent of our sin and turn to him, he doesn't keep us that way. He changes us and makes us a brand new creation. I learned of this denomination that is warmly welcoming into the active membership of their church, those who practice that lifestyle. That's a sin against the holy God. You can call it what you want, say it's not politically correct. That's a sin against God. And when I, when I think of these things, I'm just telling you, when we look at the state of the church, when we look at the state of our, our country, when we look at the state of the culture and how we're redefined, it should break our hearts. Nehemiah was not going to pass the buck. He wasn't going to put it off. He's saying that, God, God, forgive us. We've sinned. We've sinned against you. I have sinned. My family has sinned. Your people have sinned. We are a reproach against you and your holy name. Friend, I ask you today to consider, when was the last time you wept over the sins of our nation? When was the last time you interceded seriously for our political leaders? And when was the last time you wept over the state of the church? Because today is not the time to close our eyes. Today is not the time to bury our head in the sand. Today is the time for us to be broken and it's time for us to be repented and it's time for us to be the people that God wants us to be. Fourth thing, I gotta move quickly. If we're gonna pray effective, effectively in prayer, yes, we must pray 
with this brokenness, but we must also pray with faith. I have to say this very quickly, but here's a simple reality. When you're reading the situation of what they had done, when you're reading the situation of how the city still lay in ruins, how the walls were still completely destroyed, when you're reading about the reproach that they were on the name of God, this whole picture looks hopeless and it looks bleak and it looks like there's nothing that can be done. But all of that changes in two terms in verses nine through 10. It changes not because of who Nehemiah was. It changes not because of what he desired to do. It changed because of the promise of God. Verse nine, Nehemiah says, God, you said this. You promised this. This was your covenant with us. Here's what you said, God. You said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them at the end of verse nine, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. And he even reminds God, they are your servants, God, your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Here's the reality. Nehemiah prayed with confidence and he prayed with faith and he prayed with assurance because he believed the God who has all power to do anything and everything is faithful to fulfill his promises. It's amazing if we truly believe the word of God and the promises of God, how greatly it will impact the way we pray. Effective prayer is based upon the promises of God and our trust in his power to fulfill them. God has numerous promises in the Old Testament. The one that stands out most clearly on this point is what God said in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Listen to what he said. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, what will he do? Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. <laughs> Nehemiah he couldn't see that in the moment, but he believed the promise of God and he prayed accordingly and he trusted that God would work and would move in a powerful way. You might be today frustrated every time you turn on the news. Anybody there? You might look at some of these situations and we think, how in the world could we be that far off? You might look at the, even the situation of the church and you think, how could it be so corrupt and hypocritical. How could we get to this point? What possibly could be done? Here's what could happen. God is still God and he can do, still do anything and everything. And he is still faithful to fulfill his promises. There is nothing he can't do. So let's pray with faith that God will work and move so that we return to him and be right with him and that our land would be healed. Pray with faith. Final thing, pray with willingness. If we're going to be effective in our prayer, yes, we must pray with urgency. Yes, we should pray with adoration. Yes, we must pray with brokenness. Yes, all these things are true. We must pray with faith, but finally, pray with willingness. In other words, we should be willing to do whatever it is God would have us to do for his glory. Whatever it is God would have us to do towards seeking peace and a resolution. The Bible says in verse 11, Nehemiah begins to pray and he says, Oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And he clarifies, Now I was cupbearer to the king. You know what he's saying? God, I know I'm not in this position by accident. God, I know that I am not in this place at this time of all the generations and of all the years and of all the moments, 
I know this is not by chance or by accident. You've placed me on this earth. You've placed me in this position. You've put me in this opportunity. So God, would you give me success? Please understand, Nehemiah is not saying, God, would you make me the best cupbearer that there's ever been? No. He's not asking for his name or for his fame. He is asking that God would be with him so that he might honor God in the way he would live his life. Now picture the scene for just a moment. I can envision this so clearly in my mind. Nehemiah was about to ask the king to be relieved of his responsibilities as the cupbearer, to go to Jerusalem to help the people rebuild so that they were no longer a reproach against God. But there's a lot of things wrong with that. By human terms, it would seem impossible that would work. In human terms, a king never let a cupbearer go without his life being taken. So that's one major issue. But there's a second major issue. In Ezra chapter 4, we learn that in Jerusalem, there are some, frankly, some political troublemakers that were living there. And so in his haste to kind of paint a broad brush and make sure that Jerusalem suffered, this same king, Artaxerxes, in Ezra chapter 4 said, no, no more building. You can't build anything else in Jerusalem because I don't want anybody else basically coming against me. So picture the scene. Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes and says, uh, hey, uh, hey, hey, king, Mr. King, um, it's nothing personal, but I would like to leave this privileged position that you've given to me. I know you've been good to me and you've shared a lot of secrets and everything, but, but I would like to go over here and work in Jerusalem. It's not me. Uh, it's not you. It's me, okay? I, I, I got to go over here and do this. Why are you going to Jerusalem? Well, funny you should ask. You remember that decree where you said nobody could rebuild in Jerusalem anymore? Yeah, I'd like to lead the entire city to rebuild and go against your edict. Oh, and by the way, I need enough resources to build the walls and help rebuild the city, and I'd like some of your official guard to protect me along the way. You think that'll work? By human terms, this is impossible. Completely impossible. But notice what Nehemiah's doing. Even though the obstacles were great, Nehemiah has a right view of God, and we have a right view of God, no matter what the giants are, we begin to see how small they really are. Nehemiah says, God, would you give me success in the presence of this man? Well, long story short, what Nehemiah's doing is he's putting his yes on the table, and he's saying, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. I want to be obedient. I want to be a vessel for you. Summary of the book of Nehemiah, because we're not going to study it anymore for a while. Here's what happens. Nehemiah does go before the king. He does pray again. God grants him favor. God provides all the resources he needs. God provides guards for him as he goes. God goes before him before he speaks to the people. God uses him to rally the people together. Listen to this. The Jews had been in Jerusalem for almost 100 years, and they had done very little, if anything. And within 52 days, the entire work was completed. 52 days. That's impossible. It is with man. But with God, all things are possible. Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that I believe in our day to day, God is still looking for some Nehemiahs. He's looking for some Nehemiahs. Regardless of what culture's saying, regardless of what the politicians are saying, regardless of what the news is saying, he's looking for some Nehemiahs who will dare to pray with urgency, pray with adoration, 
be honest and pray with brokenness. Who will pray in faith and pray with a willingness. God, would you use me? The same God who worked mightily through Nehemiah, guess what? He's still God today, and he can work mightily in and through you. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.